0: Hi, everybody. My name is Hafa Lombardino, and this is Translation Confessional.
1: If the communication is not present, then the parent is not going to be involved in the way that is needed. The teachers are not going to know everything that they need to know for that student to succeed. And we're affecting, you know, the outcome of one person, you know, and many others that don't receive services adequately yeah, we're messing up actually with the life of someone. It does. I think it does have a great impact, and it's not as as an obvious short-term impact like the one that we see in the healthcare field or in the legal field, but it doesn't mean that it's not important. By the way,
2: those are the people that are going to be taking over, right? The children are our future. I know it sounds like a placebo to say, but it is true, and if you disenfranchise them from education, all the surveys so that there's a higher dropout rate and they end up on the welfare rolls or unemployed or whatever. And in special education, it's a legal issue. If you deny a student services because of a language access issue or they're evaluated wrong because of a language access issue, well, you've just changed that life immensely for the worse.
3: Code of Ethics for Language Professionals. Today, Translation Confessional brings you yet another very interesting interview. Hafa talked to Holly Silvestri and Loana Dennis, founding members of the American Association of Interpreters and Translators in Education, or AAITE, a nonprofit professional organization that promotes advocacy, education, and professionalization for language professionals who work in educational settings. In this interview, they discuss how important it is to raise awareness about the role of interpreters and translators who ensure language access to those students and families in the U.S. school system that have English as a second language. Most importantly, they talk about the creation of a code of ethics to guide professionals in this particular field, which is also closely related to the community, health, privacy, and legal fields. We hope you enjoy this illuminating conversation and reach out to Holly, Loanna, or the AAITE if you would like to learn more about translation and interpretation in the education segment.
0: Every once in a while, we need to translate specific parts of a document only. Usually, the text to be translated is marked with a color, so we need to make our CAT tools ignore the rest of the document. For Word documents, you can apply hidden formatting to non-translatable text manually. This is time-consuming, tedious, and prone to error. Instead, I recommend you to use the Hide Unhide text tool included in the TransTools Plus plugin for Microsoft Word. This tool hides non-translatable text in Word documents from your CAT tool based on text color and other criteria. You can hide all document text except the portions that have a specific color, or you can hide text marked with certain colors. And you can also use it to unhide all previously hidden text in the document exported from the CAD tool. If you want to check out the Hide Unhide Text tool, go to this webpage, tinyurl.com tc dash trans tools plus. I hope you like it. So,
4: I'm here with Holly and Luana, and we have a very important topic to talk about, which is code of ethics. Because our profession is just scattered all over the world with different rules, sometimes lack thereof, it's very important that we kind of unite ourselves as language professionals to provide a good service and follow some codes and some guidelines that will just guide our work to serve the public, not just the client, but the end client who will consume our work as translators, as interpreters, as language professionals. So I wanted to talk to Holly and Luana because they had a very good presentation at the ATA about the topic, and I'll just let them introduce themselves, talk about their background a little bit. And then we'll go into why you decided to do this presentation at a recent conference. So Holly, if we can start
1: with you.
2: Sure. I work at um, National Center for Interpretation, which is a unit at the University of Arizona. I also own my own business, and I have a significant amount of experience in educational interpreting, which is really why I am interested in this particular subset of community interpreting. I also have experience on the legal end of things, and I know that a lot of community interpreting in schools is also legal interpreting, so there is that aspect that I like to take advantage of as well. I took over from Luana after Luana was voted onto the board at AAITE, which is our common organization, American Association of Interpreters and Translators in Education, and I became the head of the Ethics and Standards Committee because we realized that there was no code of ethics out there that covered all of the situations that needed to be covered in educational interpreting. So
1: that's pretty much it. Loana, And thank you. And well, my name is Loana. I've been working as an interpreter since about 20 years ago. At the beginning, my my focus was more like on healthcare, but then I started liking a lot of legal interpreting. I became a certified co interpreter I'm also a certified healthcare interpreter. My main responsibility, I work as a vice president of LATN Language Solutions where I oversee a very large group of interpreters that work in many settings. And I'm basically responsible for us making sure that we're bringing quality services all the time. And that's how I became involved in not only uh, different organizations, but also at the AITE because I've been very passionate about interpreting in educational settings. And when it came to be the time in which we all gathered together to determine, okay, we're lacking a code of ethics and they were looking for volunteers to start working in in developing a code of ethics that were really tailored to educational interpreter, I kind of jumped in. And that's how I started in the ethics and standards committee and was basically one of the initial co-chairs of the committee. But then, as Holly mentioned, after I was voting in to be in the board of directors, then I had to pass on the baton, and then Holly took over leading the committee, and she also is, she's a great uh, resource and and has a ton of knowledge. And, you know, we're working together with a lot of other volunteers to to produce a very broad scope document that can cover the experience of interpreters and translators in the entire nation. Perfect.
4: And how did the idea to do this presentation come about? Did you... uh submit the proposal, or someone approached you and asked you for that because they already knew uh, your work? How, how
1: did it happen? Well, that, that's, a, that's a good question. Actually, when, when the call-out for proposals came from the ATA in preparation for the conference, I kind of thought about, okay, um, we did have an initiative to try to have a special division for educational interpreters that uh, wasn't successful in getting all the support and all the votes needed to be able to be created in 88. So I said, well, you know, it's it's a good time to start, you know, promoting the field in education, especially because it's becoming um, much larger than we estimated uh, initially that the number of practitioners are. So I think that the needs of interpreters and, and translators in education were not being met fully yet in terms of professional development opportunities. And that's why at the time, I was a co-chair of the Ethics and Standards Committee, and I submitted a proposal. Let's talk about this because we want people to know what we're doing, and we want people to join our efforts as well. So that's, that's when I submitted the proposal. That's the first time I actually submitted a proposal for ATA conference, and they accepted it. And then, Polly and I presented together, and it was a success. Very happy about that. Nice. No, I definitely concur. I think ATA was very aware
2: of our existence because we have some crossover in our membership with people who are very strong members of ATA and have been on various committees. And they're looking to serve that population, I think, although I can't speak for the people that are doing that effort try again to get a division at ATA. Uh, We only missed it by, I think, one or two votes. So really, it's a question of pushing through and making sure that this happens. And the reason I say that is because in my latest readings, Chris Millinger's book, his chapter on educational interpreting just came out recently. And his statistic is that although he counts ASL and spoken language, there are about ten thousand of us across this country that are doing this job. So we are a large subset of community interpreting. And if you look at almost all the states, they have some kind of language access issue with schools. I mean, you see it daily in the press. So it is a very needed area of service.
4: Yes. And do you believe in your experience? Because I'm not an interpreter at all, but I just you know, keep looking at my students and looking at colleagues that they talk about it. Do you think that it's still very informal in education? Because most people already have an idea of how legal interpreters have to be certified and go to court and have all these process that they have to follow. With medical, with healthcare, people also have this idea because there's always on the news of how some issues with patients not being able to communicate well with doctors. So there's already some awareness about legal and medical, but do you think that education is still a little informal? Oh, let's just get this teacher that has some Spanish, or let's just talk to whoever that is not prepared just because they have some knowledge of the language. So, do you think that it's still there's this kind of um, idea about education and interpreting right now?
1: I, I think you bring up a very important point. There is a life cycle, right, that it takes for a career to develop formally, and and that life cycle is greatly impacted by the formalization efforts. As you said, when you compare us to the formalization of legal interpreting and the formalization of healthcare interpreting, yes, we're not there yet at their level because. They started first, right? Like there was a national consortium of state courts at some point promoting the certification for court interpreting. Then in the healthcare field, you had the NCIHC and then IMIA both joined like different boards of certification, and they went through the same steps that we're going through right now in order to create a certification process. So like yes, we are not at the same level of formalization, but. Our goal is to be able to get there. Holly, what's your perspective on that?
2: I absolutely concur with everything you said, and I also think that this speaks to the larger issue of client education that we all have to do. The whole concept in the United States, because it is in so many ways a monolingual society, or at least it pretends it is, in that any bilingual is capable of doing interpreting and translating, just doesn't fly in today's world. but. It is that common myth and that's that fallback position that people who are not quite in the know and haven't had a, the talk with people who are language access specialists or linguists at a sufficient level to be able to make that call and say, oh, yeah, this is really something that a specialist should be called in for. Not the custodian and yes, it happens or the you know Spanish teacher or the bilingual secretary or whatever. There are places in schools for those people who are bilinguals and perhaps may want to do some kind of level of translation or interpreting, but I also need to let people know in the field that in educational, much of what we do is also legal, right? If you're talking about special education, that's codified in law, so you just can't call in anybody. (laughs) It just doesn't work. That IEP is a contract with the school and the parents. And if it's not done properly, lots of bad things can happen. So it is very important to recognize that uh, a professional should be brought in and, of course, bringing it back around to ethics, an ethical professional with training for a variety of reasons.
4: Exactly. I was actually going to talk about special ed. Because I don't interpret, like I said, but I do translate a lot of IEP reports. So they've already had the meeting, there was an interpreter present, but they need all the reports translated, and especially for Brazilian families that are here in California. And that's pretty much the request that I get to translate for those families that are seeking help for their children that may have special needs and language needs when it comes to being integrated in an American educational system. So those are laws for inclusion, for diversity, to make sure that students are helped when they need help with physical and mental needs in the classroom. And we would never think about, we as a society would never think about how, oh, let's just get anyone who has you know some sensibility and some awareness to be a psychiatrist and a psychologist and an advisor in this area and help a student in need. But sometimes there is that mentality of anyone that speaks the language can help. And it's not like that because we need the training. We need to understand the area. We need to have the vocabulary and we need to know how to convey the message between the school and the parents to try to help the students. So that is very important. And um, if you could talk a little bit more about the association, because like you said, there was a plan to try to get a division of the ATA that is focused on education and language access for students and all the professionals that are providing that. How did the association come about and how large is it now? So uh, this is the perfect time to just uh, raise awareness about the the association.
1: You want to start that, Holly, since you were at the very
2: beginning of our inception, Oh, this is a, this is a way back when moment, right? Uh, that's right. it seems so long ago and yet it was only what two short years ago. I think it was at the OCDE conference. Well, even prior to that, a bunch of interpreters and translators, because usually you do both in schools. We'll get to the fact that that's two different professions later, but we all saw that this was becoming more and more of a need. More and more of us were getting requests. More and more of us were specializing and seeing some how shall i say disturbing things happening in schools at times with the people that were being asked to do things that we should be asked to do and uh, we said it looks like this is the tipping point we need to do something and so we formed ITE Interversion translators in education work group to try and figure out okay what are our next steps do we need an organization do we need a division of ATA do we need something completely different how are we going to go about this there were multiple people involved 13 or 14 and luckily Natalia Avarka who I thank eternally for giving us space at OCDE Orange County Department of Ed Translators and Interpreters Conference allowed us to have a bigger forum which was kind of hybrid we did it over Zoom but also in person for people at the conference and we got a tremendous amount of feedback and people who were very interested in this who have been trying to find a home and trying to find some guidance and it sort of grew from there um, and it's still growing. <laughs> Moana knows. strong right. <laughs>
1: yeah. And, well, and and there was a national call. One thing that happened is that it was not just that group that wanted to just lead the movement alone, right? It was actually a collective effort, and I think that is a very critical component because immediately they reach out to interpreters and translators in the entire country. We have actually today our list is of more than 860 people that will reach out through our communications. And that's when that call for volunteers arrived to my email and I saw it and I said, yes, I want to be part of this. And they asked, if you want to be part of this, what committees would you like to be? You know, I put my name and that's when I started, right? Like it was in 2020 that we started working together. Formally started working together with committees already formed to try to create the vision, the mission of the organization, our purpose. And we did it in a very collective way. And one thing that it is very important to highlight is when you do things collectively, it takes more time. It takes more effort, but it comes with a much greater supported product, right? And I think that's a critical factor here because We're talking about two years of work at this point and and two years of work. And we're very close to be able to produce a code of ethics right now. We're like, you know, to the very kind of final stages of that. Yes, it's not an immediate process. I wish it was in terms of like speed, but in terms of quality, it shouldn't be. And we're taking the time to collect the input from practitioners in the entire country
2: yes and stakeholders right this is a, this is a multi-layered process we talk about it we argue about it in fact in committee and we talk about the tenets and we talk about examples and we talk about standards of practice and we get input from not just the 800 pound gorilla in the room which is the spanish interpreters but from other languages as well because other languages are represented on our committee We have representatives from all over the country on the committee as well. So it's not just a regional effort. People tend to associate us with like the California, Arizona area, and that's fine. But we have people from Massachusetts. We have people from Virginia. We have people from Colorado. You know, I can name almost all Georgia (laughs) states. (laughs) I'm from Georgia. Exactly. There you go. Because this is a national issue. Whether people want to recognize it or not, you know, I can say maybe, and I'll probably get a nasty email from someone in Wyoming, but maybe Wyoming doesn't have this issue uh, so much as maybe the other states, right? But it's a multicultural country, and more and more, especially these days, with immigration being an issue, right? Climate immigration, economic immigration, we have to face these issues whether or not immigration is going to be dealt with on the national level is a political discussion that I don't want to have because I'm ashamed of my own country. But it is a sub-adjacent issue to it because the schools are where these people end up. And if we want to make them American citizens, we need to serve them properly, right? We need to have their, bring their parents into all of the decision-making that would be necessary if language access were not an issue just as an English-speaking parent is involved and goes to board meetings and goes to PTA meetings and goes to -to back-to-school night. All that needs to be accessible. So without doing that, we're doing a serious disservice to a larger and larger portion of our country. And by the way, those are the people that are going to be taking over, right? The children are our future. I know it sounds like a placebo to say, but it is true. And if you disenfranchise them from education, which I believe is the third leg of the stool that is where certification is necessary because in medicine and medical interpreting, do it wrong, kill somebody. Oops. (laughs) In legal, do it wrong, put the wrong person in prison or kill somebody because it's a capital case. Oops, not a bad choice, right? But in education as well, especially in special education, if they are not involved, the parents, even in general ed, all the surveys show that there's a higher dropout rate, And they end up on the welfare rolls or unemployed or whatever. And in special education, it's a legal issue. If you deny a student services because of a language access issue or they're evaluated wrong because of a language access issue, well, you've just changed that life immensely for the worse. Yeah, absolutely. the third certification that this country really has to look at.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, as you said, the success of that student depends on, parents' involvement and also in the ability of the parents to communicate the needs of the child and participate in providing everything that the child needs in the education process together with the team and, and the school system, right? So if the communication is not present, then the parent is not going to be involved in the way that is needed. The teachers are not going to know everything that they need to know for that student to succeed. And we're affecting, you know, the outcome of one person, you know, and many others that don't receive services adequately. Yeah, we're messing up actually with the life of someone. It does, I think it does have a great impact, and it's not as as an obvious short-term impact like the one that we see in the healthcare field or in the legal field, but it doesn't mean that it's not important.
4: I completely agree, and uh, like I said, from the translation uh, perspective, I see that Everything can go wrong so fast if we don't have the communication, and it's an invisible kind of effect because it may not be as immediate as health and legal. Someone is not going to be in jail or someone is not going to die on an operating table, but it is long-lasting, so we definitely have to address that and make sure that qualified professionals are providing a service and make sure that we have the tools to qualify those professionals for newer generations coming in. Those students can grow up to be our leaders and uh, take it from there. And do you have any kind of um, examples, of course, keeping everybody anonymous, just of how some things have gone wrong because we did not have this kind of awareness of how training and ethics are needed for those professionals?
2: Well, you can see it in the press. There have been several schools where OCR, the Office of Civil Rights, has come in and said, nope, <laughs> you're doing it wrong, and now we're going to take over for you, and you have to prove to us that you can do it right. Um, I won't name the schools. You can certainly Google Office of Civil Rights and school issues, and you can see that there are a number of issues amongst which is language access. And that can be because they're not properly training their people, because someone has filed a complaint because they did not get the services that they needed, even though it's a legally binding requirement in many cases. Of course, it's not a hundred percent. It is legally specified that you have to be a subset of a certain percentage in the school district before this kicks in. But on the ethical and moral level as well, if it's just that one Vietnamese speaker in the district, you would assume maybe falsely in some cases, that the school district would want to communicate with that parent and would take a portion of the budget that's assigned to T&I and make this happen. I think that that is a very varying response across the school districts because schools are locally controlled in the United States. That's something that a lot of people, even in the United States, don't realize. Very, very local control, school boards. I mean, you can see it now with the whole... How should I phrase this politely... Baloney about masking and unmasking and getting shot and not getting a shot and being required to be in school or be online. All of that is so patched work because the American school system is so locally controlled. And unfortunately, because it is being pushed into the political arena, but that's another conversation for another moment. But it does have an effect on language access as well because it is something that, although federally mandated in a lot of cases, how it is done is very locally controlled.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we can't deny the influence that it has in budgetary decisions, right? When when schools are working their solutions and they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we provide language access? And then they look at the budget and they look at the limited resources that they have. Right? Because, you know, on one side, there is still a big struggle on the school systems I and mean, it's like, you know, they're trying to stretch the resources as much as they can. And that's why we see that some school districts with much higher percentage of diversity in the student population have come up with kind of departments of interpreting and translation services, right? But then we have school districts where there is not awareness developed yet and they come with other solutions. Let's say just a liaison, bilingual liaison, or even a bilingual front desk person that ends up like doing all the translation and interpreting for the school district. So it depends. What you see out there, you see for the most sophisticated decision-making in terms of creating translation and interpreting services department and having a very specific process to measure fluency in the language and actually performance as a translator. And then you have school districts that they basically hire someone that says to be bilingual and they don't even measure the level of fluency of that person in the other language, much less like their ability to interpret or translate a document, right? So yeah, that's where we are. The quality of the service received by the non-English speakers will create a completely different experience for someone who's in, in the district that have the correct set of resources versus the one in a place where resources are not provided.
4: Yes, it's a very important issue, and I'm just glad that you know more people are aware of that now. Especially with all the Zoom meetings because of the pandemic, a lot of the interpreters that I know are really booked back to back to talk to parents during meetings because they have to facilitate everything to make sure that everybody's included. And um, having said that, is there any other topic that you like to bring up? If people um, could volunteer or if people want to know more information, where could they go? What else can you tell us about everything that is going on?
1: Well, we have a website, org, and we have an email for us to receive any inquiries, info at org. And we're open to membership right now. We open for membership in August of twenty twenty one. And since then we have built a membership base and we're inviting members to become part of our committees as well or to work in special tasks or projects that we set aside. We have a best practices committee working in multiple documents of best practices for our field. We are creating small projects as well on the side, like if there is a project in which like someone suggests let's build a glossary. So we invite everybody that is interested in the field that works in the field or wants to specialize in educational interpreting to join us and participate in our activities as committee members but also we have EduTalk. EduTalk is a monthly meeting we get together as colleagues that practice in the field and discuss a specific topic of interest and is a very interactive approach we do have a presentation By an expert in the field at the beginning, then we divide into smaller groups and have a more in depth discussion. And then we reconvene to basically discuss what was learned during that small breakout. You know, I see people that are super happy about it because they feel like finally they're able to speak with other interpreters about the same concerns and share their own experiences and then kind of even find solutions to dilemmas that they have had in the past. You know, did I do this right or did I do it wrong? What, what would have been the best way to approach it? And you get to hear from other people's perspectives in that setting. So I think that's something that we bring to membership at no cost. Uh, people that are no members are able to join that, paying very small nominal fee. They are able to participate in the talks mm-hmm. if they have not decided to become members yet.
2: Yes, and our committees do need more members. We're looking for Of course, the 800-pound gorilla in the room, the Spanish interpreters, but also other languages, right? Any languages of lesser diffusion, we have a serious interest in including, and we'd love to have members who are interpreters or translators of languages of lesser diffusion come into our fold because they too need a voice, and we want desperately to hear from them. There are things that we don't know if we only work in certain languages that may be an issue that we can help resolve if we know about it, but you cannot do that unless someone speaks up and takes an active role. That is part of being a professional, in my opinion, taking an active role in your own growth and development, and that involves joining a professional organization, in my opinion. And this is a place also where you can learn leadership skills if you want to become part of a bigger movement get your name out there, get the chance to do presentations. It's a great building block. I think more people should be involved. And I welcome anyone to come on to any of the committees I'm on. I'm only on two, but I have like 14 subcommittees. But there are a lot, a lot of committees that we need help with because this is all volunteer work. Remember, any organization that's a professional organization is a volunteer organization, which also means that it does move slowly because it's not something that's going to pay my mortgage. I I do this in my free time, (laughs) like all of us. Therefore, it may move a bit slowly than perhaps the public wants, but the more of us there are, right? Many hands meet light work. I think that's the American expression, right? So if you want that certification and you're waiting and waiting, get involved, do something to make it move forward. Come and join
4: us. Exactly. It's a, a volunteer work. It's a passion work. It's a passion project. If we all get involved, we can move forward. And I do agree we have to belong to associations and help elevate the whole profession, not just for continuing education, for us to become better professionals, but also to just lift everybody up. The more we lift everybody up, the easier things will get because we will uh, be on the same page. We will do things following a code of ethics. We will do things correctly. And the clients will also understand that that's how things are done. That it's not something that we can just improvise and whoever can can do it just, you know, use a dictionary and everybody's okay. So I completely agree and um, I thank you so much for the initiative that even though it doesn't affect me because I'm not an interpreter, it does affect my colleagues and it does affect the work that I do as a translator because then if there is an interpreter that did a good job in an IEP meeting, it's so much easier for me to get that information when I'm translating the reports. So it's something that everybody uh, is involved, and everybody that has kids in the system will benefit from it as well. When I set up my kids for kindergarten, I said that I speak Portuguese to them at the house, so they had reinforcement for English, even though they didn't need it linguistically. But it's something that I really appreciated because they could just break out into small groups and have someone that would pay attention to that, help them read better. So it's something that only helps kids only helps us as professionals to know that we're doing a good job and how we can improve. And I really appreciate all this information and I'll have links in the episode's description so people can join, can learn more, have the edit talks that I think it's a very good resource for people that are trying to get that kind of feedback of something happened during this meeting, how can I do better next time? And it's amazing that you have this organization that is doing this job now. So Thank you so much for sharing this information and um, keep it up because we need people like you to actually get us to move forward. Thank you
2: for having us. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having us. And we are very, very excited because we're coming up on our year and we're hurriedly organizing our conference so we could use people to help us with our conference too.
4: Nice. So way to bury the leads. So there's gonna be a conference too. Perfect. Okay. So uh, I'll just put all the information there, plug in the, the website. And then when the conference announcement comes out, um, yeah, people can just send their uh, own uh, proposals and uh, join and, and talk about it. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you.
3: Send us an email at Lombardino at wordawareness.com or leave a voice message on the Translation Confessional Anchor page. If we get enough feedback and voice messages, we can go back to this subject and post a special podcast episode with everyone's opinion on this very same theme. By the way, our Anchor page is anchor.fm slash translation confessional. We look forward to hearing from you.